Hi everybody, Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. I'm so glad you tuned in. I want to share with you that next month, specifically August 26th, will mark my two-year anniversary of doing the Carla Reads the Classics podcast. And where did the time go? I don't know. But I'm so happy to still be doing this podcast, and your support means everything. I ask you to please help me keep it going by making a contribution. You can click the support link at the end of the show notes if you would care to contribute to the podcast. Uh, if you would prefer to support another way, you can use Cash App, and the address for that is Carla Reads. In the episode description, you'll also find other ways that you can make a contribution. So I hope to be around doing this for a long time, and your support would really help towards that. So. Anyway, now about today's stories. I have for you a few short stories that I think you'll like, and I think they're just fantastic stories. And I know I say that about all the stories I read, but these really, really are great stories. The first two are by O. Henry. Now, the first one is called The Romance of a Busy Broker. Now, that's the story of how obsession with with one's work can lead to neglect in other areas of, of, of life. So, you know, sometimes we get so obsessed with what we're doing with our work that other things kind of fall by the wayside. And that's kind of what this story is about, the romance of a busy broker. And then I have for you another story by O. Henry, and this one is called The Cactus. It was published in 1902. And this is the story of Trisdale, who is very, very much in love with a girl, but alas, he loses her in what I think is a very, very, very funny way. Leave a note uh, or leave a comment, uh, reply to the question, and I'll pin you on Spotify if you agree or if you don't agree. And another story I have for you is by Susan Glassbell, and this one is called A Jury of Her Peers, written in 1917 excellent short story that I think you will really, really, really like. It's a dark story about the investigation of the murder of Mr. John Wright on a cold, wintry day and how the police and the district attorney are looking for evidence that they can't find. But you focus on the women in that situation, in that setting, and they are amazing. So, In any event, I give you these wonderful stories here today at Carla Reads the Classics. I so hope that you enjoy them. Please leave a comment and I will post you on Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned. The Romance of a Busy Broker by O. Henry Pitcher, confidential clerk in the office of Harvey Maxwell, broker, allowed a look of mild interest and surprise to visit his usually expressionless countenance when his employer briskly entered at half-past nine in company with his young lady stenographer. With a snappy, good morning, Pitcher, Maxwell dashed at his desk as though he were intending to leap over it and then plunged into the great heap of letters and telegrams waiting there for him. The young lady had been Maxwell's stenographer for a year. She was beautiful in a way that was decidedly unstenographic. She forewent the pomp of the alluring pompadour. She wore no chains, bracelets, or lockets. She had not the air of being about to accept an invitation to luncheon. Her dress was great and plain, but it fitted her figure with fidelity and discretion. 
and her neat black turban hat was the gold-green wing of a macaw. On this morning, she was softly and shyly radiant. Her eyes were dreamily bright, her cheeks genuine peach blow, her expression a happy one tinged with reminiscence. Pitcher, still mildly curious, noticed a difference in her ways this morning. Instead of going straight into the adjoining room where her desk was, she lingered, slightly irresolute, in the outer office. Once, she moved over by Maxwell's desk, near enough for him to be aware of her presence. The machine sitting at that desk was no longer a man. It was a busy New York broker, moved by buzzing wheels and uncoiling springs. Well, what is it? Anything? asked Maxwell sharply. He opened mail. His open mail laid like a bank of stage snow on his crowded desk. His keen gray eye, impersonal and brusque, flashed upon her half impatiently. Nothing, answered the stenographer, moving away with a little smile. Mr. Pitcher, she said to the confidential clerk, did Mr. Maxwell say anything yesterday about engaging another stenographer? He did, answered Pitcher. He told me to get another one. I notified the agency yesterday afternoon to send over a few samples this morning. It's 9.45 o'clock and not a single picture, hat, or piece of pineapple chewing gum has showed up yet. I will do the work as usual then, said the young lady, until someone else comes to fill the place. And she went to her desk at once and hung the black turban hat with the gold green macaw wing in its unaccustomed place. He who has been denied the spectacle of a busy Manhattan broker during a rush of business is handicapped for the profession of anthropology. The poet sings of the crowded hours of glorious life. The broker's hour is not only crowded, but the minutes and seconds are hanging to all the straps and packing both front and rear platforms. And this day was Harvey Maxwell's busy day. The ticker began to reel out jerkily its fitful coils of tape. The desk telephone had a chronic attack of buzzing. Men began to throng into the office and call at him over the railing, jovially, sharply, viciously, excitedly. Messenger boys ran in and out with messages and telegrams. The clerks in the office jumped about like sailors during a storm. Even Pitcher's face relaxed into something resembling animation. On the exchange, there were hurricanes and landslides and snowstorms and glaciers and volcanoes, and those elemental disturbances were reproduced in miniature in brokers' offices. Maxwell shoved his chair against the wall and transacted business after the manner of a toe dancer. He jumped from ticker to phone, from desk to door, with the trained agility of a harlequin. In the midst of this growing and important stress, the broker became suddenly aware of a high-rolled fringe of golden hair under a nodding canopy of velvet and ostrich tips, an imitation sealskin sack, and a string of beads as large as hickory nuts ending near the floor with a silver heart. There was self-possessed, there was a self-possessed young lady connected with these accessories, and picture was there to construe her. Lady from the from the stenographer's agency to see about the position, said Pitcher. Maxwell turned half around with his hands full of papers and ticker tape. What position? he asked with a frown. Position of stenographer, said Pitcher. You told me yesterday to call them up and have one sent over this morning. You are losing your mind, Pitcher said Maxwell. Why should, I why should I have given you any such instructions? Miss Leslie has given perfect satisfaction during the year she has been here. The place is hers as long as she chooses to retain it. There's no place open here, madam. 
countermand that order with the agency picture and don't bring any more of them in here. The silver heart left the office swinging and banging itself independently against the office furniture as it indignantly departed. Pitcher seized a moment to remark to the bookkeeper that the old man seemed to get more absent-minded and forgetful every day of the world. The rush and pace of business grew fiercer and faster. On the floor, there were pounding half a dozen stocks in which Maxwell's customers were heavy investors. Orders to buy and sell were coming and going as swift as the flight of swallows. Some of his own holdings were imperiled, and the man was working like some high-geared, delicate, strong machine, strung to full tension, going at full speed, accurate, never hesitating, with the proper word and decision to act ready and prompt as clockwork. Stocks and bonds, loans and mortgages, margins and securities. Here was a world of finance, and there was no room in it for the human world or the world of nature. When the luncheon hour drew near, there came a slight lull in the uproar. Maxwell stood by his desk with his hands full of telegrams and memoranda, with a fountain pen over his right ear and his hair hanging in disorderly strings over his forehead. His window was open for the beloved janitress sprung had turned on a little warmth through the waking registers of the earth. And through the window came a wondering, perhaps a lost odor, a delicate, sweet odor of lilac that filled the broker for a moment, immovable. For this odor belonged to Miss Leslie. It was her own and hers only. The odor brought her vividly, almost tangibly, before him. The world of finance dwindled suddenly to a speck, and she was in the next room, twenty steps away. By George, I'll, I'll do it now, said Maxwell, half aloud. I'll ask her now. I wonder, I wonder I didn't do it long ago. He dashed into the inner office with the haste of a, of a short trying to cover. He charged upon the desk of the stenographer. She looked up at him with a smile. A soft pink crept over her cheek and her eyes were kind and frank. Maxwell leaned one elbow on her desk. He still clutched fluttering papers with both hands and the pen was still above his ear. Miss Leslie, he began hurriedly, I have but a moment to spare. I want to say something in that moment. Will you be my wife? I haven't had time to make love to you in the ordinary way, but I do really love you. Talk quick, please. Those fellows are clubbing and, and stuffing out the Union Pacific. Oh, what are you talking about? exclaimed the young lady. She rose to her feet and gazed upon him, round-eyed. Don't you understand? said Maxwell. I want you to marry me. I love you, Miss Leslie. I wanted to tell you, and I snatched a minute when things had slacked up a bit. They're calling for, for me for the phone now. Tell them to wait a minute, Pitcher, won't you? Miss Leslie? The stenographer acted very queerly. At first she seemed overcome with amazement. Then tears flowed from her wondering eyes, and then she smiled sunnily through them, and one of her arms slid tenderly about the broker's neck. I know now, she said softly. It's this old business that has driven everything else out of your head for the time. I was frightened at first. Don't you remember, Harvey? We were married last evening at eight o'clock in the little church around the corner.
This one is also by O. Henry, and it is called The Cactus. The most notable thing about time is that it is so purely relative. A large amount of reminiscences, by common consent, conceded to the drowning man, and it is not past belief that one may review an entire courtship while removing one's gloves. That is what Trysdale was doing, standing by a table in his bachelor apartments. On the table stood a singular-looking green plant in a red earthen jar. The plant was one of the species of cacti and was provided with long tentacular leaves that perpetually swayed with the slightest breeze with a peculiar beckoning motion. Trysdale's friend, the brother of the bride, stood at a sideboard complaining at being allowed to drink alone. Both men were in evening dress. White favors like stars upon their coats shone through the gloom of the apartment. As he slowly unbuttoned his gloves, there passed through Trysdale's mind a swift, scarifying retrospect of the last few hours. It seemed that in his nostrils was still the scent of the flowers that had been banked in odorous masses about the church, and in his ears the low-pitched hum of a thousand well-bred voices, the rustle of crisp garments, and most insistently recurring, the drawling words of the minister irrevocably binding her to another. From this last hopeless point of view, he still strove, as if it had become a habit of his mind, to reach some conjecture as to why and how he had lost her. Shaken rudely by the uncompromising fact, he had suddenly found himself confronted by a thing he had never before faced, his own innermost unmitigated, arid, unbedecked self. He saw all the garbs of pretense and egoism that he had worn now turned to rags of folly. He shuddered at the thought that to others before now, the garments of his soul must have appeared sorry and threadbare. Vanity and conceit? These were the joints in his armor, and how free from either she had always been, but why? As she had slowly moved up the aisle toward the altar, he had felt an unworthy, sullen exultation that had served to support him. He had told himself that her paleness was from thoughts of another than the man to whom she was about to give herself. But even that poor consolation had been wrenched from him, for when he saw that swift, limp, limpid, upward look that she gave the man when he took her hand, he knew himself to be forgotten. Once that same look had been raised to him, and he had gauged its meaning. Indeed, his conceit had crumbled. Its last prop was gone. Why had it ended thus? There had been no quarrel between them, nothing. For the thousandth time, he remarshaled in his mind the events of those last few days before the tide had so suddenly turned. She had always insisted upon placing him upon a pedestal, and he had accepted her homage with royal grandeur. It had been a very sweet incense that she had burned before him, so modest, he told himself, so childlike and worshipful, and he would have once sworn so sincere. She had invested him with an almost supernatural number of high attributes and excellencies and talents, and he had absorbed the oblation as a desert drinks the rain that can coax, that can coax from it no promise of blossom or fruit. As Trysdale grimly wrenched apart the seam of his last glove, the crowning instance of his fatuous and tardily mourned egoism came vividly back to him. The scene was the night when he had asked her to come up to his pedestal with him 
and share his greatness. He could not now, for the pain of it, allow his mind to dwell upon the memory of her convincing beauty that night, the careless wave of her hair, the tenderness and virginal charm of her looks and words. But they had been enough, and they had brought him to speak. During their conversation, she had said, And Captain Carruthers tells me that you speak, you speak the Spanish language like a native. Why have you hidden this accomplishment from me? Is there anything that you do not know? Now, Carruthers was an idiot. No doubt he, Trysdale, had been guilty, he sometimes did such things, of airing at the club some old canting Castilian proverb dug from the hodgepodge at the back of dictionaries. Carruthers, who was one of his inconstant admirers, was the very man to have magnified this exhibition of doubtful erudition. But alas, the incense of her admiration had been so sweet and flattering. He allowed the imputation to pass without denial. Without protest, he allowed her to twine about his brow this furious bay of Spanish scholarship. He let it grace his conquering head, and among its soft convulsions, he did not feel the prick of the thorn that was to pierce him later. How glad, how shy, how tremulous she was, how she fluttered like a snared bird when he laid his mightiness at her feet. He could have sworn, and he could swear now, that unmistakable consent was in her eyes, but coyly she would give him no direct answer. I will send you my answer tomorrow, she said, and he, the indulgent, confident victor, smilingly granted the delay. The next day he waited, impatient, in his rooms for the word. At noon her groom came to the door and left the strange cactus in the earthen red jar. There was no note, no message merely a tag upon the plant bearing a barbarous for foreign or botanical name. He waited until night, but her answer did not come. His large pride and huge vanity kept him from seeking her. Two evenings later, they met at a dinner. Their greetings were conventional, but she looked at him breathless, wondering, eager. He was courteous, adamant, waiting her explanation. With womanly swiftness, she took her cue from his manner and turned to snow and ice thus and wider from his own they had drifted apart where was his fault who had been to blame humbled now he sought the answer amid the ruins of his self-conceit if the voice of the other man in the room querulously intruding upon his thoughts aroused him i say trysdale what the deuce is the matter with you you look unhappy as if you yourself had been married instead of having acted merely as an accomplice Look at me, another accessory, come 2,000 miles on a garlicky, cockroachy banana steamer all the way from South America to connive at the sacrifice. Please to observe how lightly my guilt rests upon my shoulders. Only little sister I had, too, and now she's gone. Come now, take something to ease your conscience. I don't drink just now, thanks, said Trysdale. Your brandy, resumed the other, coming over and joining him, is abominable. Run down to see me sometime at Ponta Redonda and try some of our stuff that old Garcia smuggles in. It's worth the trip. Hello, here's an old acquaintance. Wherever did you rake this cactus, Trysdale? A present, said Trysdale, from a friend. Know the species? Very well. It's a tropical concern. See hundreds of them around Punta every day. Here's the name on this tag tied to it. Know any Spanish, Trysdale? No, said Trysdale with a bitter wraith of a smile. Is it Spanish? Yes, the natives imagine the leaves are reaching out and beckoning to you. 
They call it by its name. Bentomarme means in English, come and take me. A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glassbell. When Martha Hale opened the storm door and got a cut of the north wind, she ran back for her big woolen scarf. As she hurriedly wound that round her head, her eye made a scandalized sweep of her kitchen. It was no ordinary thing that called her away. It was probably further from ordinary than anything that had ever happened in Dixon County. But what her eye took in was that her kitchen was in no shape for leaving, her bread all ready for mixing, half the flour sifted and half unsifted. She hated to see things half done, but she had been at that when the team from town stopped to get Mr. Hale, and then the sheriff came running in to say his wife wished Mrs. Hale would come too, adding with a grin that he guessed she was getting scary and wanted another woman along, so she had dropped everything right where it was. Martha, now came her husband's impatient voice, don't keep folks waiting out here in the cold. She again opened the storm door and this time joined the three men and the one woman waiting for her in the big two-seated buggy. After she had the robes tucked round her, she took another look at the woman who sat beside her on the seat. She had met Mrs. Peters the year before at the county fair, and the thing she remembered about her was that she didn't seem like a sheriff's wife. She was small and thin and didn't have a strong voice. Mrs. Gorman, sheriff's wife, before Gorman went out and Peters came in, had a voice that somehow seemed to be backing up the law with every word. But if Mrs. Peters didn't look like a sheriff's wife, Peters made it up and looking like a sheriff. He was to a dot, the kind of man who could get himself elected sheriff, a heavy man with a big voice who was particularly genial with the law-abiding, as if to make it plain that he knew the difference between criminals and non-criminals. And right there it came to Mrs. Hale's mind with a stab that this man who was so pleasant and lively with all of them was going to rights now as a sheriff. The county's not very pleasant this time of year, Mrs. Peters at last ventured, as if she felt they ought to be talking as well as the men. Mrs. Hale scarcely finished her reply, for they had gone up a little hill and could see the right place now, and seeing it does, did not make her feel like talking. It looked very lonesome this cold March morning. It had always been a lonesome-looking place. It was down in a hollow, and the poplar trees around it were lonesome-looking trees. The men were looking at it and talking about what had happened. The county attorney was bending to one side of the buggy and kept looking steadily at the place as they drew up to it. I'm glad you came with me, Mrs. Peter said nervously, as the two women were about to follow the men in through the kitchen door. Even after she had her foot on the doorstep, her hand on the knob, Martha Hale had a moment of feeling she could not cross that threshold. And the reason it seemed she couldn't cross it now was simply because she hadn't crossed it before. Time and time again, it had been in her mind, I ought to go over and see Minnie Foster. She still thought of her as Minnie Foster, though for 20 years she had been Mrs. Wright. And then there was always something to do when Minnie Foster would go from her mind. But now she could come. The men went over to the stove. 
the women stood close together by the door. Young Henderson, the county attorney, turned around and said, Come up to the fire, ladies. Mrs. Peters took a step forward, then stopped. I'm not cold, she said. And so the two women stood by the door, at first not even so much as looking around the kitchen. The men talked for a minute about what a good thing it was the sheriff had sent his deputy out that morning to make a fire for them, and then Sheriff Peter stepped back from the stove, unbuttoned his outer coat, and leaned his hands on the kitchen table in a way that seemed to mark the beginning of official business. Now, Mr. Hale, he said in sort of a semi-official voice, before we move things about, you tell Mr. Henderson just what it was you saw when you came here yesterday morning. The county attorney was looking around the kitchen. By the way, he said, has anything been moved? He turned to the sheriff. Are things just as you left them yesterday? Peters looked from the cupboard to the sink, from that to a small worn rocker to a little one side of the kitchen table. It's just the same. Somebody should have been left here yesterday, said the county attorney. Oh, yesterday, returned the sheriff with a little gesture as of yesterday having been more than he could bear to think of. What I had to send Frank to Morris Center for, that man who went crazy, let me tell you. I had my hands full yesterday. I knew you could get back from Omaha by today, George, and as long as I went over everything here myself. Well, Mr. Hale, said the county attorney, in a way of letting what was past and gone go. Tell just what happened when you came here yesterday morning. Mrs. Hale, still leaning against the door, had that sinking feeling of the mother whose child is about to speak a piece. Lewis often wandered along and got things mixed up in a story. She hoped he would tell the straight and plain and not say unnecessary things that would make things harder for Minnie Foster. He didn't begin at once, and she noticed that he looked queer, as if standing in that kitchen and having to tell what he had seen there yesterday morning made him almost sick. Yes, Mr. Hale, the county attorney reminded. Harry and I had started to town with the load of potatoes. Mrs. Hale's husband began. Harry was Mrs. Hale's oldest boy. He wasn't with them now for the very good reason that those potatoes never got to town yesterday, and he was taking them this morning, so he hadn't been home when the sheriff stopped by to say he wanted Mr. Hale to come over to the right place and tell the county attorney his story there, where he could, where he could point it all out. With all Mrs. Hale's other emotions came the fear now that maybe Harry wasn't dressed warm enough they hadn't any of them realized how that north wind did bite. We come along this road, Hale was going on, with the motion of his hand to the road over which they had just come. And as we got inside of the house, I says to Harry, I'm going to see if I can get John Wright to take a telephone. You see, he explained to Henderson, unless I can get somebody to go with me, they won't come out this branch road except for a price. I can't pay. I'd spoke to Wright about it once before, but he put me off saying folks talk too much anyway, and all he asked was peace and quiet. Guess you know about how much he talked. Guess you know about how much he talked himself. But I thought maybe if I went to the house and talked about it before his wife and said all the women folks like the telephones and that in this lonesome stretch of road it would be a good thing, well, I said to Harry that was what I was going to say, though I said at the same time that I didn't know as what his wife wanted made much difference to John. Now, there he was, saying those things he didn't need to say. Mrs. Hale tried to catch her husband's eye, but fortunately the county attorney interrupted with, 
Let's talk about that a little later, Mr. Hale. I do want to talk about that, but I'm anxious now to get along to just to get along to just what happened when you got there. When he began this time, it was very deliberate and carefully. I didn't see or hear anything. I knocked at the door and still it was all quiet inside. I knew they must be up. It was past eight o'clock. So I knocked again, louder, and I thought I heard somebody say, come in. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure yet. But I opened the door, this door, jerking a hand toward the door by which the two women stood. And there, in that rocker, pointing to it, sat Mrs. Wright. Everyone in the kitchen looked at the rocker. It came into Mrs. Hale's mind that that rocker didn't look in the least like Minnie Foster, the Minnie Foster of 20 years before. It was a dingy red with wooden rungs up the back and the middle rung was gone and the chair sagged to one side. How did she look? The county attorney was inquiring. Well, said Hale, she looked queer. How do you mean queer? As he asked it, he took out a notebook and pencil. Mrs. Hale did not like the sight of that pencil. She kept her eye fixed on her husband as if to keep him from saying unnecessary things that would go into that notebook and make trouble. Hale did speak guardedly as if the pencil had affected him too. Well, as if she didn't know what she was going to do next and kind of done up. How did she seem to feel about your coming? Why, I don't think she minded one way or other. She didn't pay much attention. I said, how do Mrs. Wright? It's cold, ain't it? And she said, is it? And went on pleading at her apron. Well, I was surprised. She didn't ask me to come up to the stove or to sit down, but just sat there, not even looking at me. And so I said, I want to see John. And then she laughed. I guess she would call it a laugh. I thought of Harry and the team outside, so I said, a little sharp, Can I see John? No, she says, kind of dull-like. Ain't he home? says I. Then she looked at me. Yes, she says, he's home. Then why can't I see him? I asked her, out of patience with her now. Because he's dead, says she, just as quiet and dull and fell to pleading her apron. Dead, says I, like you do when you can't take in what you've heard. She just nodded her head, not getting a bit excited, but rocking back and forth. Why, where is he? Says I, not knowing what to say. She just pointed upstairs, like this, pointing to the room above. I got up with the idea of going up there myself. By this time, I, I didn't know what to do. I walked from there to here. Then I says, what? What did he die of? He died of a rope around his neck, says she and just went on pleating at her apron. Hale stopped speaking and stood staring at the rocker as if he were still seeing the woman who had sat there this morning before. Nobody spoke. It was as if everyone were seeing the woman who had sat there the morning before. And what did you do then? The county attorney at last broke the silence. I went out and called Harry. I thought I might need help. I got Harry in and we went upstairs. His voice fell almost to a whisper. There he was, lying over the... I think I'd rather have you go into that upstairs, the county attorney interrupted, where you can point it all out. Just go on now with the rest of the story. Well, my first thought was to get that rope off. It looked... 
He stopped, his face twitching. But Harry, he went up to him and he said, no, he's dead all right, and we'd better not touch anything. So we went downstairs. She was still sitting that same way. Has anybody been notified? I asked. No, says she, unconcerned. Who did this, Mrs. Wright, said Harry. He said it business-like, and she stopped pleating at her apron. I don't know, she says. You don't know, says Harry. Weren't you sleeping in the bed with him? Yes, says she, but I was on the inside. Somebody slipped a rope around his neck and strangled him. And you didn't wake up, says Harry. I didn't wake up, she said after him. We may have looked as if we didn't see how that could be. For after a minute, she said, I sleep sound. Harry was going to ask her more questions, but I said, maybe that weren't our business. Maybe we ought to let her tell her story first to the coroner or to the sheriff. So Harry went fast as he could over the high road, the river's place where there's a telephone. And what did she do when she knew you had gone for the coroner? The attorney got his pencil in his hand, all ready for writing. She moved from that chair to this one over here. Hale pointed to a small chair in the corner and just sat there with her hands held together and looking down. I got a feeling that I ought to make some conversation, so I said I had come in to see if John wanted to put in a telephone. And at that, she started to laugh. And then she stopped and looked at me, scared. At the sound of a moving pencil, the man who was telling the story looked up. I don't know, maybe it wasn't scared, he hastened. I wouldn't like to say it was. Soon Harry got back and then Dr. Lloyd came and you, Mr. Peters, and so I guess that's all I know that you don't. He said that last with relief and moved a little as if relaxing. Everyone moved a little. The county attorney walked toward the stair door. I guess we'll go upstairs first, then out to the barn and around there. He paused and looked around the kitchen. You're convinced there was nothing important here? He asked the sheriff. Nothing that would point to any motive? The sheriff, too, looked all around as if to reconvince himself. Nothing here but kitchen things, he said, with a little laugh for the insignificance of kitchen things. The county attorney was looking at the cupboard, a peculiar ungainly structure, half closet and half cupboard, the upper part of it being built in the wall and the lower part just the old-fashioned kitchen cupboard. As if its queerness attracted him, he got a chair and opened the upper part and looked in. After a moment, he drew his hand away quickly. Here's a nice mess, he said resentfully. The two women had drawn nearer, and now the sheriff's wife spoke. Oh, her fruit, she said, looking to Mrs. Hale for sympathetic understanding. She turned back to the county attorney and explained. She worried about that when it turned so cold last night. She said the fire would go out and her jars might burst. Mrs. Peter's husband broke into a laugh. Well, can you beat the women? Hell for murder and worrying about her preserves. The young attorney set his lips. I guess before we're through with her, she may have something more serious than preserves to worry about. Oh, well, said Mrs. Hale's husband, with good-natured superiority. Women are used to worrying over trifles. The two women moved a little closer together. Neither of them spoke. The county attorney seemed suddenly to remember his manners and think of his future. And yet, he said, with the gallantry of a young politician, for all their worries, what would we do without the ladies? The women did not speak, did not unbend. He went to the sink and began washing his hands. He turned to wipe them on the roller towel 
welded for a cleaner place. Dirty towels, not much of a housekeeper, would you say, ladies? He kicked his foot against some dirty pans under the sink. There's a great deal of work to be done on a farm, said Mrs. Hale stiffly. To be sure, and yet, with a little bow to her, I know there are some Dixon County farmhouses that do not have such roller towels. He gave it a pull to, explode, to expose its full length again. These towels get dirty awful quick. Men's hands aren't always as clean as they might be. Ah, loyal to your sex, I see, he laughed. He stopped and gave her a keen look. But you and Mrs. Wright were neighbors. I suppose you were friends, too. Martha Hale shook her head. I've seen little enough of her of late years. I've not been in this house. It's, it's more than a year. And why was that? You didn't like her? I liked her well enough, she replied with spirit. Farmer's wives have their hands full, Mr. Henderson. And then she looked around the kitchen. Yes, he encouraged. It never seemed a very cheerful place, she said, more to herself than to him. No, he agreed. I don't think anyone would call it cheerful. I shouldn't say she had the home-making instinct. Well, I don't know as Wright had either, she muttered. You mean they didn't get on very well? He was quick to ask. No, I don't mean anything, she answered with decision. As she turned a little away from him, she added, but I don't think a place would be any cheerfuler for John Wright's being in it. I'd like to talk to you about that a little later, Mrs. Hale, he said. I'm anxious to get the lay of things upstairs now. He moved toward the stair door, followed by the two men. I suppose anything Mrs. Peters does will be all right, the sheriff inquired. She was to take in some clothes for her, you know, and a few little things. We left in such a hurry yesterday. The county attorney looked at the two women. They were leaving alone there among the kitchen things. Yes, Mrs. Peters, he said his glance resting on the woman who was not Mrs. Peters, the big farmer woman who stood behind the sheriff's wife. Of course, Mrs. Peters is one of us, he said, in a manner of entrusting responsibility. And keep your eye out, Mrs. Peters, for anything that might be of use. No telling, you women might come up with a clue to the motive, and that's the thing we need. Mr. Hale rubbed his face after the fashion of a showman getting ready for pleasantry. But would the woman know a clue if they did come upon it, he said, and having delivered himself of this, he followed the others through the stair door. The woman stood motionless and silent, listening to the footsteps, first upon the stairs, then in the room above them. Then, as if releasing herself from something strange, Mrs. Hale began to arrange the dirty pans under the sink, which the county attorney's disdainful push of the foot had deranged. I'd hate to have men coming into my kitchen, she said testily, snooping round and criticizing. Of course, it's no more than their duty, said the sheriff's wife in her manner of timid acquiescence. Duty's all right, replied Mrs. Hale bluffly, but I guess that deputy sheriff that, that come out to make the fire might have got a little of, of this on. She gave the roller towel a pull. Wish I'd thought of that sooner. Seems mean to talk about her for not having things slicked up when she had to come away in such a hurry. She looked around the kitchen. Certainly it was not slicked up. Her eye was held by a bucket of sugar on a low shelf. The cover was off the wooden bucket, and beside it was a paper bag half full. Mrs. Hale moved toward it. She was putting this in there, she said to herself slowly. She thought of the flour in her kitchen at home, half sifted, half not sifted. She had been interrupted and had left things half done. What had interrupted Minnie Foster? What had 
that work been left why had that work been left half done she made a move as if to finish it unfinished things always bothered her and then she glanced around and saw that mrs peters was watching her and she didn't want mrs peters to get that feeling she had got of work begun and then for some reason not finished it's a shame about her fruit she said and walked toward the cupboard that the county attorney had opened and got on the chair murmuring i wonder if it's all gone it was a sorry it was sorry enough looking sight but here's one that's all right she said at last she held it toward the light this is cherries too she looked again i declare i believe that's the only one with a sigh she got down from the chair went to the sink and wiped off the bottle she'll feel awful bad after all her hard work in the hot weather i remember the afternoon i put up my cherries last summer she set the bottle on the table and with another sigh started to sit down in the rocker but she did not sit down. Something kept her from sitting down in that chair. She straightened, stepped back, and half turned away, stood looking at it, seeing the woman who had sat there, pleating at her apron. The thin voice of the sheriff's wife broke in upon her. I must be getting those things from the front room closet. She opened the door into the other room, started in, stepped back. You coming with me, Mrs. Hale? She asked nervously. You, you could help me get them. They were soon back. The stark coldness of that shut-up room was not a thing to linger in. My, said Mrs. Peters, dropping the things on the table and hurrying to the stove. Mrs. Hale stood examining the clothes the woman who was being detained in town had said she wanted. Right was close, she exclaimed, holding up a shabby black skirt that bore the marks of much making over. I think maybe that's why she kept so much to herself. I suppose she felt she couldn't do her part. And then you don't enjoy things when you feel shabby. She used to wear pretty clothes and be lively when she was Minnie Foster, one of the town girls singing in the choir. But that, oh, that was 20 years ago. With a carefulness in which there was something tender, she folded the shabby clothes and piled them at one corner of the table. She looked up at Mrs. Peters, and there was something in the other woman's look that irritated her. She don't care, she said to herself. Much difference it makes to her whether Minnie Foster had pretty clothes when she was a girl. Then she looked again, and she wasn't so sure. In fact, she hadn't any time been perfectly sure about Mrs. Peters. She had that shrinking manner, and yet her eyes looked as if they see a long way into things. This all you was to take in? asked Mrs. Hale. No, said the sheriff's wife. She said she wanted an apron. Funny thing to want, she ventured into her, she ventured in her nervous little way, for there's not much to get you dirty in jail, goodness knows. But I suppose just to make her feel more natural, if you're used to wearing an apron. She said they were in the bedroom drawer of this cupboard. Yes, here they are. And then her little shawl that always hung on the stair door. She took the small gray shawl from behind the door leading upstairs and stood a minute looking at it. Suddenly, Mrs. Hale took a quick step toward the other woman. Mrs. Peters? Yes, Mrs. Hale? Do you think she did it? A frightened look blurred the other thing in Mrs. Peters' eyes. Oh, I don't know, she said, in a voice that seemed to shrink away from the subject. Well, I don't think she did, affirmed Mrs. Hale stoutly asking for an apron and her little shawl, worrying about her fruit. Mr. Peters says, 
footsteps were heard in the room above. She stopped, looked up, then went on in a lowered voice. Mr. Peters says it looks bad for her. Mr. Henderson is awful sarcastic in his speech, and he's going to make fun of her saying she didn't wake up. For a moment, Mrs. Hale had no answer. Then, well, I guess John Wright didn't wake up when they were slipping that rope under his neck, she muttered. No, it's strange, breathed Mrs. Peters. They think it was such a funny way to kill a man. She began to laugh at sound of the laugh. Abrupt, abruptly stopped. That's just what Mr. Hale said, said Mrs. Hale in a resolutely natural voice. There was a gun in the house. He says that's what he can't understand. Mr. Henderson said, coming out, that was what was needed for the case was a motive, something to show anger or sudden feeling. Well, I don't see any signs of anger around here, said Mrs. Hale. I don't, she stopped. It was as if her mind tripped on something. Her eye was caught by a dish towel in the middle of the kitchen table. Slowly, she moved toward the table. One half of it was wiped clean, the other half messy. Her eyes made a slow, almost unwilling turn to the bucket of sugar and the half-empty bag beside it. Things begun and not finished. After a moment, she stepped back and said, in that manner of releasing herself, "'Wonder how they're finding things upstairs.' I hope she had a little more red up there. You know, she paused and feeling gathered, it seems kind of sneaking, locking her up in town and coming out here to get her own house to turn against her. But Mrs. Hale, said the sheriff's wife, the law is the law. I suppose tis, answered Mrs. Hale shortly. She turned to the stove, saying something about that fire not being much to brag of. She worked with it a minute, and when she straightened up, she said aggressively, the law is the law, and a bad stove is a bad stove. How'd you like to cook on this? Pointing with the poker to the broken lining, she opened the oven door and started to express her opinion of the oven. But she was swept into her own thoughts, thinking of what it would mean year after year to have that stove to wrestle with. The thought of Minnie Foster trying to bake in that oven, and the thought of her never going over to see Minnie Foster. She was startled by hearing Mrs. Peters say, a person gets discouraged and loses heart. The sheriff's wife had looked from the stove to the sink to the pail of water, which had been carried in from outside. The two women stood there, silent. Above them, the footsteps of the men who were looking for evidence against the woman who had worked in that kitchen. That look of seeing into things, of seeing through a thing to something else, was in the eyes of the sheriff's wife's now. When Mrs. Hale next spoke to her, it was gently. Better loosen up your things, Mrs. Peters. We'll not, feel, we'll not feel them when we go out. Mrs. Peters went back, went to the back of the room to hang up the fur tippet she was wearing. A moment later, she exclaimed, Why, she was piecing a quilt and held up a large sewing basket piled high with quilt pieces. Mrs. Hale spread some of the blocks on the table. It's a log cabin pattern, she said putting several of them together. Pretty, isn't it? They were so engaged with the quilt that they did not hear the footsteps on the stairs. Just as the stair door opened, Mrs. Hale was saying, do you suppose she was going to quilt it or just knot it? The sheriff threw up his hands. They wonder whether she was going to quilt it or just knot it. There was a laugh for the ways of women, a warming of hands over the stove, and then the county attorney said briskly, well, Let's go out to the barn and get that cleared up. 
I don't see as there's anything so strange, Mrs. Hale said resentfully, after the outside door had closed on the three men. Are taking up our time with little things while we're waiting for them to get the evidence. I don't see as it's, it's anything to laugh about. Of course they've got awful important things on their minds, said the sheriff's wife apologetically. They returned to an introspection of the block for the quilt. Mrs. Hale was looking at the fine, even sewing, and preoccupied with thoughts of the woman who had done that sewing when she heard the sheriff's wife say in a queer tone, Why, look at this one. She turned to take the block held out to her. The sewing, said Mrs. Peters in a troubled way. All the rest of them have been so nice and even. But this one, why, it looks as if she didn't even know what she was about. Their eyes met. Something flashed to life, passed between them. Then, as if with an effort, they seemed to pull away from each other. A moment Mrs. Hale sat there, her hands folded over that sewing, which was so unlike all the rest of the sewing. Then she had pulled a knot and drawn the threads. Oh, what are you doing, Mrs. Hale? Asked the sheriff's wife, startled. Just pulling out a stitch or two that's not sewed very good, said Mrs. Hale mildly. I don't think we ought to touch things, Mrs. Peters said a little helplessly. I'll just finish this up and answered Miss Hale, still in that mild, matter-of-fact fashion. She threaded a needle and started to replace bad sewing with good. For a little while, she sewed in silence. Then, in that thin, timid voice, she heard, Mrs. Hale? Yes, Mrs. Peters. What do you suppose she was so nervous about? Oh, I don't know, said Mrs. Hale, as if dismissing a thing not important enough to spend much time on. I don't know as she was nervous. I sew awful queer sometimes when I'm just tired. She cut a thread and out of the corner of her eye looked up at Mrs. Peters. The small lean face of the sheriff's wife seemed to have tightened up. Her eyes had that look of peering into something. But the next moment she moved and said in her thin indecisive way, well, I must get those clothes wrapped. They may be through sooner than we think. I wonder where I could find a piece of paper and string. In that cupboard, maybe, suggested to Mrs. Hale, after a glance around. One piece of the crazy sewing remained unripped. Mrs. Peters' back turned. Martha Hale now criticized that piece, compared it with the dainty, accurate sewing of the other blocks. The difference was startling. Holding this block made her feel queer, as if the distracted thoughts of the woman who had perhaps turned to it to try and quiet herself were communicating themselves to her. Mrs. Peters' voice roused. Here's a bird cage," she said. Did she have a bird, Mrs. Hale? Why, I don't know whether she did or not. She turned to look at the cage Mrs. Peters was holding up. I've not been in here so long, she sighed. There was a man round last year selling canaries cheap, but I don't know if she took one. Maybe she did. She used to sing real pretty herself. Mrs. Peters looked round the kitchen. Seems kind of funny to think of a bird here. She half laughed and attempted to put up a barrier. But she must have had one, or why would she have a cage? I wonder what happened to it. I suppose maybe the cat got it, suggested Mrs. Hale, resuming her sewing. No, she didn't have a cat. She's got that feeling some people have about cats, being afraid of them. When they brought her to our house yesterday, my cat, my cat got in the room and she was real upset and asked me to take it out. My sister Bessie was like that, laughed Mrs. Hale. The sheriff's wife did not reply. The silence made Mrs. Hale turn round. 
Mrs. Peters was examining the birdcage. Look at this door, she said slowly. It's broke. One hinge has been pulled apart. Mrs. Hale came nearer. Looks as if someone must have been rough with it. Again, their eyes met, startled, questioning, apprehensive. For a moment, neither spoke nor stirred. Then Mrs. Hale, turning away, said brusquely, If they're going to find any evidence, I wish they'd be about it. I don't like this place. But I'm awful glad you came with me, Mrs. Hale. Mrs. Peters put the birdcage on the table and sat down. It would be lonesome for me, sitting here alone. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? agreed Mrs. Hale a certain determined naturalness in her voice. She had picked up the sewing, but now dropped it in her lap, and she murmured in a different voice, But I tell you what I do wish, Mrs. Peters. I wish I had come over sometimes when she was here. I wish I had. But of course you were awful busy, Mrs. Hale, your house and your children. I could have come, retorted Mrs. Hale shortly, I stayed away because it weren't cheerful, and that's why I ought to, and that's why I ought to have come. I she looked around. I've never liked this place. Maybe because it's down in a hollow and you don't see the road. I don't know what it is, but it's a lonesome place and always was. I wish I had come over to see Minnie Foster sometimes. I can see now. She didn't put it into words. Well, you mustn't reproach yourself, counseled Mrs. Peters. Somehow we just don't see how it ends with other folks till, till something comes up. Not having children makes less work, mused Mrs. Hale after a silence, but it makes a quiet house and right out at work all day and no company when he did come in. Did you know John Wright, Mrs. Peters? Not to know him. I, I've seen him in town. They say he was a good man. Yes, good, conceded John Wright's neighbor grimly. He didn't drink and kept his word as well as most, I guess, and paid his debts. But he was a hard man, Mrs. Peters, just to pass the time of day with him. She stopped, shivered a little, like a raw wind that gets to the bone. Her eye fell upon the cage on the table before her, and she added almost bitterly, I should think she would have wanted a bird. Suddenly she leaned forward, looking intently at the cage. But what do you suppose went wrong with it? I don't know returned Mrs. Peters, unless it got sick and died. But after she said it, she reached over and swung the broken door. Both women watched it as if somehow they were held by it. You didn't know her? Mrs. Hale asked, a gentler note in her voice. Not till they brought her yesterday, said the sheriff's wife. She, come to think of it, she was kind of like a bird herself, real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and fluttery. How she did change. That held her for a long time. Finally, as it struck with a happy thought and relieved to get back to everyday things, she exclaimed, Tell you what, Mrs. Peters, why don't you take the quilt in with you? It might take up her mind. Why, I think that's a real nice idea, Mrs. Hale, agreed the sheriff's wife, as she, too, were glad to come into the atmosphere of a simple kindness there couldn't possibly be any objection to that, could there? Now, just what will I take? I wonder if her patches are in here and, and her things. They turned to the sewing basket. Here's some red, said Mrs. Hale, bringing out a roll of cloth. Underneath that was a box. Here, maybe her scissors are in here and her things. She held it up. What a pretty box. I'll warrant that was something she had a long time ago when she was a girl. 
She held it in her hand a moment, then with a little sigh, opened it. Instantly, her hand went to her nose. Why? Mrs. Peters drew nearer, then turned away. There's something, there's something wrapped up in this piece of silk, faltered Mrs. Hale. This isn't her scissors, said Mrs. Peters in a shrinking voice. Her hand is not steady. Mrs. Hale raised the piece of silk. Oh, Mrs. Peters, she cried. It's, it's, Mrs. Peters bent closer. It's the bird, she whispered. But Mrs. Peters, cried Mrs. Hale, look at it. It's, it's neck. Look at its neck. It's all other side too. She held the box away from her. The sheriff's wife began, the sheriff's wife again bent closer. Somebody's wrung its neck, she said in a voice that was slow and deep. And then again, the eyes of the two women met, this time clung together in a look of dawning apprehension of growing horror. Mrs. Peters looked from the dead bird to the broken door of the cage. Again, their eyes met, and just then there was a sound at the outside door. Mrs. Hale slipped the box under the quilt pieces in the basket and sank into the chair before it. Mrs. Peters stood holding to the table. The county attorney and the sheriff came in from the outside. Well, ladies, said the county attorney, as one turning from serious things to little pleasantries, have you decided whether she was going to quilt it or knot it? We think, began the sheriff's wife in a flurried voice, that she was going to knot it. He was too preoccupied to notice the, cha the change that came in her voice on that last. Well, that's very interesting, I'm sure, he said tolerantly. He caught sight of the bird cage. Has the bird flown? We think the cat got it, said Mrs. Hale in a voice curiously even. He was walking up and down as if thinking something out. Is there a cat? He asked absently. Mrs. Hale shot a look up at the sheriff's wife. Well, not now, said Mrs. Peters. They're superstitious, you know, they leave. She sank into her chair. The county attorney did not heed her. No sign at all of anyone having come in from the outside, he said to Peters in a manner of continuing an interrupted conversation. Their own rope. Now, let's go upstairs again and go over it, piece by piece. It would have to have been someone who knew just the... The stair door closed behind them and their voices were lost. The two women sat motionless, not looking at each other, but as if peering into something and at the same time holding back. When they spoke now, it was as if they were afraid of what they were saying, but as if they could not help saying it. She liked the bird, said Martha Hale, low and slowly. She was going to bury it in that pretty box. When I was a girl, said Mrs. Peters under her breath, my kitten, there was a boy took a hatchet and before my eyes, before I could get there, she covered her face in an instant. If they hadn't held me back, I would have. She caught herself, looked upstairs where footsteps were heard and finished weakly. Hurt him. Then they sat without speaking or moving. I wonder how it would seem, Mrs. Hale said at last, as if feeling her way over strange ground, never to have had any children around. Her eyes made a slow sweep of the kitchen, as if seeing what that kitchen had meant through all the years. No, Wright wouldn't like the bird, she said after that, a thing that sang. She used to sing. He killed that, too. Her voice tightened. Mrs. Peters moved uneasily. Of course, we don't know who killed the bird. I knew John Wright, was Mrs. Hale's answer. It was an awful thing was done in, in this house that night, Mrs. Hale, 
said the sheriff's wife, killing a man while he, while he slept, slipping a thing round his neck that choked the life out of him. I thought of Harry and the team outside, so I said, a little sharp, Can I see John? No, she says, kind of dull-like. Ain't he home? says I. Then she looked at me. Yes, she says, he's home. Then why can't I see him? I asked her, out of patience with her now. Cause he's dead, says she, just as quiet and dull and fell to pleading her apron. Dead, says I, like you do when you can't take in what you've heard. She just nodded her head, not getting a bit excited, but rocking back and forth. Why, where is he? Says I, not knowing what to say. She just pointed upstairs, like this, pointing to the room above. I got up with the idea of going up there myself. By this time, I, I didn't know what to do. I walked from there to here. Then I says, what? What did he die of? He died of a rope around his neck, says she and just went on pleating at her apron. Hale stopped speaking and stood staring at the rocker as if he were still seeing the woman who had sat there this morning before. Nobody spoke. It was as if everyone were seeing the woman who had sat there the morning before. And what did you do then? The county attorney at last broke the silence. I went out and called Harry. I thought I might need help. I got Harry in and we went upstairs. His voice fell almost to a whisper. There he was, lying over the... I think I'd rather have you go into that upstairs, the county attorney interrupted, where you can point it all out. Just go on now with the rest of the story. Well, my first thought was to get that rope off. It looked... He stopped, his face twitching. But Harry, he went up to him and he said, No, he's dead, all right, and we'd better not touch anything. So we went downstairs. She was still sitting that same way. Has anybody been notified? I asked. No, says she, unconcerned. Who did this, Mrs. Wright, said Harry. He said it businesslike, and she stopped pleating at her apron. I don't know, she says. You don't know, says Harry. Weren't you sleeping in the bed with him? Yes, says she, but I was on the inside. Somebody slipped a rope around his neck and strangled him. And you didn't wake up, says Harry. I didn't wake up, she said after him. We may have looked as if we didn't see how that could be. For after a minute, she said, I sleep sound. Harry was going to ask her more questions, but I said, maybe that weren't our business. Maybe we ought to let her tell her story first to the coroner or to the sheriff. So Harry went fast as he could over the high road the river's place where there's a telephone. And what did she do when she knew you had gone for the coroner? The attorney got his pencil in his hand, all ready for writing. She moved from that chair to this one over here. Hale pointed to a small chair in the corner and just sat there with her hands held together and looking down. I got a feeling that I ought to make some conversation, so I said I had come in to see if John wanted to put in a telephone. And at that, she started to laugh. And then she stopped and looked at me, scared. At the sound of a moving pencil, the man who was telling the story looked up. I don't know, maybe it wasn't scared, he hastened. I wouldn't like to say it was. 
Soon Harry got back and then Dr. Lloyd came and you, Mr. Peters, and so I guess that's all I know that you don't. He said that last with relief and moved a little as if relaxing. Everyone moved a little. The county attorney walked toward the stair door. I guess we'll go upstairs first, then out to the barn and around there. He paused and looked around the kitchen. You're convinced there was nothing important here? He asked the sheriff. Nothing that would point to any motive? The sheriff, too, looked all around as if to reconvince himself. Nothing here but kitchen things, he said, with a little laugh for the insignificance of kitchen things. The county attorney was looking at the cupboard, a peculiar ungainly structure, half closet and half cupboard, the upper part of it being built in the wall and the lower part just the old-fashioned kitchen cupboard. As if its queerness attracted him, he got a chair and opened the upper part and looked in. After a moment, he drew his hand away quickly. Here's a nice mess, he said resentfully. The two women had drawn nearer and now the sheriff's wife spoke. Oh, her fruit, she said, looking to Mrs. Hale for sympathetic understanding. She turned back to the county attorney and explained. She worried about that when it turned so cold last night. She said the fire would go out and her jars might burst. Mrs. Peter's husband broke into a laugh. Well, can you beat the women? Hell for murder and worrying about her preserves. The young attorney set his lips. I guess before we're through with her, she may have something more serious than preserves to worry about. Oh, well, said Mrs. Hale's husband, with good-natured superiority. Women are used to worrying over trifles. The two women moved a little closer together. Neither of them spoke. The county attorney seemed suddenly to remember his manners and think of his future. And yet, he said, with the gallantry of a young politician, for all their worries, what would we do without the ladies? The woman did not speak, did not unbend. He went to the sink and began washing his hands. He turned to wipe them on the roller towel, whirled it for a cleaner place. Dirty towels, not much of a housekeeper, would you say, ladies? He kicked his foot against some dirty pans under the sink. There's a great deal of work to be done on a farm, said Mrs. Hale stiffly. To be sure, and yet, with a little bow to her, I know there are some Dixon County farmhouses that do not have such roller towels. He gave it a pull to, explode, to expose its full length again. These towels get dirty awful quick. Men's hands aren't always as clean as they might be. Ah, loyal to your sex, I see, he laughed. He stopped and gave her a keen look. But you and Mrs. Wright were neighbors. I suppose you were friends, too. Martha Hale shook her head. I've seen little enough of her of late years. I've not been in this house. It's, it's more than a year. And why was that? You didn't like her? I liked her well enough, she replied with spirit. Farmer's wives have their hands full, Mr. Henderson. And then she looked around the kitchen. Yes, he encouraged. It never seemed a very cheerful place, she said, more to herself than to him. No, he agreed. I don't think anyone would call it cheerful. I shouldn't say she had the home-making instinct. Well, I don't know as Wright had either, she muttered. You mean they didn't get on very well? He was quick to ask. No, I don't mean anything, she answered with decision. As she turned a little away from him, she added, but I don't think a place would be any cheerfuler for John Wright's being in it. I'd like to talk to you about that a little later, Mrs. Hale, he said. I'm anxious to get the lay of things upstairs now. He moved toward the stair door, followed by the two men. I suppose anything Mrs. Peters does will be all right, the sheriff inquired. She was to take in some clothes for her, you know, 
and a few little things. We left in such a hurry yesterday. The county attorney looked at the two women. They were leaving alone there among the kitchen things. Yes, Mrs. Peters, he said, his glance resting on the woman who was not Mrs. Peters, the big farmer woman who stood behind the sheriff's wife. Of course, Mrs. Peters is one of us, he said, in a manner of entrusting responsibility. And keep your eye out, Mrs. Peters, for anything that might be of use. No telling. You women might come up with a clue to the motive. And that's the thing we need. Mr. Hale rubbed his face after the fashion of a showman getting ready for pleasantry. But would the women know a clue if they did come upon it? He said, and having delivered himself of this, he followed the others through the stair door. The women stood motionless and silent, listening to the footsteps, first upon the stairs, then in the room above them. Then, as if releasing herself from something strange, Mrs. Hale began to arrange the dirty pans under the sink, which the county attorney's disdainful push of the foot had deranged. I'd hate to have men coming into my kitchen, she said testily, snooping round and criticizing. Of course, it's no more than their duty, said the sheriff's wife in her manner of timid acquiescence. Duty's all right, replied Mrs. Hale bluffly, but I guess that deputy sheriff that, that come out to make the fire might have got a little of, of this on. She gave the roller towel a pull. Wish I'd thought of that sooner. Seems mean to talk about her for not having things slicked up when she had to come away in such a hurry. She looked around the kitchen. Certainly it was not slicked up. Her eye was held by a bucket of sugar on a low shelf. The cover was off the wooden bucket, and beside it was a paper bag half full. Mrs. Hale moved toward it. She was putting this in there, she said to herself slowly. She thought of the flour in her kitchen at home, half sifted, half not sifted. She had been interrupted and had left things half done. What had interrupted Minnie Foster? What had that work been left? Why had that work been left half done? She made a move as if to finish it. Unfinished things always bothered her. And then she glanced around and saw that Mrs. Peters was watching her. And she didn't want Mrs. Peters to get that feeling she had got of work begun and then, for some reason, not finished. It's a shame about her fruit, she said, and walked toward the cupboard that the county attorney had opened and got on the chair, murmuring, I wonder if it's all gone. It was a sorry, it was sorry enough looking sight, but here's one that's all right, she said at last. She held it toward the light. This is cherries too. She looked again. I declare, I believe that's the only one. With a sigh, she got down from the chair, went to the sink and wiped off the bottle. She'll feel awful bad after all her hard work in the hot weather. I remember the afternoon I put up my cherries last summer. She set the bottle on the table and, with another sigh, started to sit down in the rocker. But she did not sit down. Something kept her from sitting down in that chair. She straightened, stepped back, and half turned away, stood looking at it, seeing the woman who had sat there, pleating at her apron. The thin voice of the sheriff's wife broke in upon her. I must be getting those things from the front room closet. She opened the door into the other room, started in, stepped back. You coming with me, Mrs. Hale? She asked nervously. You, you could help me get them. They were soon back. The stark coldness of that shut up room was not a thing to linger in. My, said Mrs. Peters, dropping the things on the table and hurrying to the stove. 
Mrs. Hale stood examining the clothes the woman who was being detained in town had said she wanted. Wright was close, she exclaimed, holding up a shabby black skirt that bore the marks of much making over. I think maybe that's why she kept so much to herself. I suppose she felt she couldn't do her part. And then you don't enjoy things when you feel shabby. She used to wear pretty clothes and be lively when she was Minnie Foster, one of the town girls singing in the choir. But that, oh, that was 20 years ago. With the carefulness in which there was something tender, she folded the shabby clothes and piled them at one corner of the table. She looked up at Mrs. Peters and there was something in the other woman's look that irritated her. She don't care, she said to herself. Much difference it makes to her whether Minnie Foster had pretty clothes when she was a girl. Then she looked again and she wasn't so sure. In fact, she hadn't any time been perfectly sure about Mrs. Peters. She had that shrinking manner and yet her eyes looked as if they see a long way into things. This all you was to take in? asked Mrs. Hale. No, said the sheriff's wife. She said she wanted an apron. Funny thing to want, she ventured into her, she ventured in her nervous little way, for there's not much to get you dirty in jail, goodness knows, but I suppose just to make her feel more natural, if you're used to wearing an apron. She said they were in the bedroom drawer of this cupboard. Yes, here they are, and then her little shawl that always hung on the stair door. She took the small gray shawl from behind the door leading upstairs and stood a minute looking at it. Suddenly, Mrs. Hale took a quick step toward the other woman. Mrs. Peters? Yes, Mrs. Hale? Do you think she did it? A frightened look blurred the other thing in Mrs. Peters' eyes. Oh, I don't know, she said, in a voice that seemed to shrink away from the subject. Well, I don't think she did, affirmed Mrs. Hale stoutly asking for an apron and her little shawl, worrying about her fruit. Mr. Peters says, footsteps were heard in the room above. She stopped, looked up, then went on in a lowered voice. Mr. Peters says, it looks bad for her. Mr. Henderson is awful sarcastic in his speech, and he's going to make fun of her saying she didn't wake up. For a moment, Mrs. Hale had no answer. Then, well, I guess John Wright didn't wake up when they were slipping that rope under his neck she muttered. No, it's strange, breathed Mrs. Peters. They think it was such a funny way to kill a man. She began to laugh at sound of the laugh, abrupt, abruptly stopped. That's just what Mr. Hale said, said Mrs. Hale in a resolutely natural voice. There was a gun in the house. He says that's what he can't understand. Mr. Henderson said, coming out, that was what was needed for the case was a motive, something to show anger or sudden feeling. Well, I don't see any signs of anger around here, said Mrs. Hale. I don't, she stopped. It was as if her mind tripped on something. Her eye was caught by a dish towel in the middle of the kitchen table. Slowly, she moved toward the table. One half of it was wiped clean, the other half messy. Her eyes made a slow, almost unwilling turn to the bucket of sugar and the half-empty bag beside it. Things begun and not finished. After a moment, she stepped back and said, in that manner of releasing herself, wonder how they're finding things upstairs. I hope she had a little more red up there. You know, she paused and feeling gathered, it seems kind of sneaking, locking her up in town and coming out here to get her own house to turn against her. 
But Mrs. Hale, said the sheriff's wife, the law is the law. I suppose tis, answered Mrs. Hale shortly. She turned to the stove, saying something about that fire not being much to brag of. She worked with it a minute, and when she straightened up, she said aggressively, the law is the law, and a bad stove is a bad stove. How'd you like to cook on this? Pointing with the poker to the broken lining. She opened the oven door and started to express her opinion of the oven. But she was swept into her own thoughts, thinking of what it would mean year after year to have that stove to wrestle with. The thought of Minnie Foster trying to bake in that oven, and the thought of her never going over to see Minnie Foster. She was startled by hearing Mrs. Peters say, A person gets discouraged and loses heart. The sheriff's wife had looked from the stove to the sink to the pail of water which had been carried in from outside. The two women stood there, silent. Above them, the footsteps of the men who were looking for evidence against the woman who had worked in that kitchen. That look of seeing into things, of seeing through a thing to something else, was in the eyes of the sheriff's wife's now. When Mrs. Hale next spoke to her, it was gently. Better loosen up your things, Mrs. Peters. We'll not feel, we'll not feel them when we go out. Mrs. Peters went back went to the back of the room to hang up the fur tippet she was wearing. A moment later, she exclaimed, Why, she was piecing a quilt, and held up a large sewing basket piled high with quilt pieces. Mrs. Hale spread some of the blocks on the table. It's a log cabin pattern, she said, putting several of them together. Pretty, isn't it? They were so engaged with the quilt that they did not hear the footsteps on the stairs. Just as the stair door opened, Mrs. Hale was saying, do you suppose she was going to quilt it or just knot it? The sheriff threw up his hands. They wonder whether she was going to quilt it or just knot it. There was a laugh for the ways of women, a warming of hands over the stove, and then the county attorney said briskly, Well, let's go out to the barn and get that cleared up. I don't see as there's anything so strange, Mrs. Hale said resentfully, after the outside door had closed on the three men are taking up our time with little things while we're waiting for them to get the evidence. I don't see as it's, it's anything to laugh about. Of course they've got awful important things on their minds, said the sheriff's wife apologetically. They returned to an introspection of the block for the quilt. Mrs. Hale was looking at the fine, even sewing, and preoccupied with thoughts of the woman who had done that sewing when she heard the sheriff's wife say in a queer tone, Why, look at this one. She turned to take the block held out to her. The sewing, said Mrs. Peters in a troubled way. All the rest of them have been so nice and even. But this one, why, it looks as if she didn't even know what she was about. Their eyes met. Something flashed to life, passed between them. Then, as if with an effort, they seemed to pull away from each other. A moment Mrs. Hale sat there, her hands folded over that sewing, which was so unlike all the rest of the sewing. Then she had pulled a knot and drawn the threads. Oh, what are you doing, Mrs. Hill? Asked the sheriff's wife, startled. Just pulling out a stitch or two that's not sewed very good, said Mrs. Hale mildly. I don't think we ought to touch things, Mrs. Peters said a little helplessly. I'll just finish this up and answered Miss Hill, still in that mild, matter-of-fact fashion. She threaded a needle and started to replace bad sewing with good, for a little while, she sewed in silence. Then, in that thin, timid voice, she heard, Mrs. Hale? Yes, Mrs. Peters. What do you suppose she was so nervous about? Oh, 
Oh, I don't know, said Mrs. Hale, as if dismissing a thing not important enough to spend much time on. I don't know as she was, nervous. I so awful queer sometimes when I'm just tired. She cut a thread and out of the corner of her eye looked up at Mrs. Peters. The small lean face of the sheriff's wife seemed to have tightened up. Her eyes had that look of peering into something. But the next moment she moved and said in her thin and decisive way, Well, I must get those clothes wrapped. They may be through sooner than we think. I wonder where I could find a piece of paper and string. In that cupboard, maybe, suggested to Mrs. Hale, after a glance around. One piece of the crazy sewing remained unripped. Mrs. Peters' back turned. Martha Hale now criticized that piece, compared it with the dainty, accurate sewing of the other blocks. The difference was startling. Holding this block made her feel queer, as if the distracted thoughts of the woman who had perhaps turned to it to try and quiet herself were communicating themselves to her. Mrs. Peter's voice roused. Here's a bird cage," she said. Did she have a bird, Mrs. Hale? Why, I don't know whether she did or not. She turned to look at the cage Mrs. Peters was holding up. I've not been in here so long, she sighed. There was a man round last year selling canaries cheap, but I don't know if she took one. Maybe she did. She used to sing real pretty herself. Mrs. Peters looked round the kitchen. Seems kind of funny to think of a bird here. She half laughed and attempted to put up a barrier. But she must have had one, or why would she have a cage? I wonder what happened to it. I suppose maybe the cat got it, suggested Mrs. Hale, resuming her sewing. No, she didn't have a cat. She's got that feeling some people have about cats, being afraid of them. When they brought her to our house yesterday, my cat, my cat got in the room, and she was real upset and asked me to take it out. My sister Bessie was like that, laughed Mrs. Hale. The sheriff's wife did not reply. The silence made Mrs. Hale turn round. Mrs. Peters was examining the birdcage. Look at this door, she said slowly. It's broke. One hinge has been pulled apart. Mrs. Hale came nearer. Looks as if someone must have been rough with it. Again, their eyes met, startled, questioning, apprehensive. For a moment, neither spoke nor stirred. Then Mrs. Hale, turning away, said brusquely, If they're going to find any evidence, I wish they'd be about it. I don't like this place. But I'm awful glad you came with me, Mrs. Hale. Mrs. Peters put the birdcage on the table and sat down. It would be lonesome for me, sitting here alone. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? agreed Mrs. Hale a certain determined naturalness in her voice. She had picked up the sewing, but now dropped it in her lap, and she murmured in a different voice, But I tell you what I do wish, Mrs. Peters. I wish I had come over sometimes when she was here. I wish I had. But of course you were awful busy, Mrs. Hale, your house and your children. I could have come, retorted Mrs. Hale shortly. I stayed away because it weren't cheerful, and that's why I ought to, and that's why I ought to have come. I she looked around. I've never liked this place. Maybe because it's down in a hollow and you don't see the road. I don't know what it is, but it's a lonesome place and always was. I wish I had come over to see Minnie Foster sometimes. I can see now. She didn't put it into words. Well, you mustn't reproach yourself, counseled Mrs. Peters. Somehow we just don't see how it ends with other folks till, till something comes up. Not having children makes less work, 
mused Mrs. Hale after a silence, but it makes a quiet house and right out at work all day and no company when he did come in. Did you know John Wright, Mrs. Peters? Not to know him. I, I've seen him in town. They say he was a good man. Yes, good, conceded John Wright's neighbor grimly. He didn't drink and kept his word as well as most, I guess, and paid his debts. But he was a hard man, Mrs. Peters, just to pass the time of day with him. She stopped, shivered a little, like a raw wind that gets to the bone. Her eye fell upon the cage on the table before her, and she added almost bitterly, I should think she would have wanted a bird. Suddenly she leaned forward, looking intently at the cage. But what do you suppose went wrong with it? I don't know returned Mrs. Peters, unless it got sick and died. But after she said it, she reached over and swung the broken door. Both women watched it as if somehow they were held by it. You didn't know her? Mrs. Hale asked, a gentler note in her voice. Not till they brought her yesterday, said the sheriff's wife. She, come to think of it, she was kind of like a bird herself, real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and fluttery. How she did change. That held her for a long time. Finally, as it struck with a happy thought and relieved to get back to everyday things, she exclaimed, Tell you what, Mrs. Peters, why don't you take the quilt in with you? It might take up her mind. Why, I think that's a real nice idea, Mrs. Hale, agreed the sheriff's wife, as she, too, were glad to come into the atmosphere of a simple kindness there couldn't possibly be any objection to that, could there? Now, just what will I take? I wonder if her patches are in here and, and her things. They turned to the sewing basket. Here's some red, said Mrs. Hale, bringing out a roll of cloth. Underneath that was a box. Here, maybe her scissors are in here and her things. She held it up. What a pretty box. I'll warrant that was something she had a long time ago when she was a girl. She held it in her hand a moment, then, with a little sigh, opened it. Instantly, her hand went to her nose. Why? Mrs. Peters drew nearer, then turned away. There's something, there's something wrapped up in this piece of silk, faltered Mrs. Hale. This isn't her scissors, said Mrs. Peters in a shrinking voice. Her hand is not steady. Mrs. Hale raised the piece of silk. Oh, Mrs. Peters, she cried. It's, it's. Mrs. Peters bent closer. It's the bird, she whispered. But Mrs. Peters, cried Mrs. Hale, look at it. It's its neck. Look at its neck. It's all other side, too. She held the box away from her. The sheriff's wife began, the sheriff's wife again bent closer. Somebody's wrung its neck, she said, in a voice that was slow and deep. And then again, the eyes of the two women met, this time clung together in a look of dawning apprehension, of growing horror. Mrs. Peters looked from the dead bird to the broken door of the cage. Again, their eyes met, and just then there was a sound at the outside door. Mrs. Hale slipped the box under the quilt pieces in the basket and sank into the chair before it. Mrs. Peters stood holding to the table. The county attorney and the sheriff came in from the outside. Well, ladies, said the county attorney, as one turning from serious things to little pleasantries, have you decided whether she was going to quilt it or knot it? We think, began the sheriff's wife in a flurried voice, that she was going to knot it. He was too preoccupied to notice the, cha the change that came in her voice on that last. 
Well, that's very interesting, I'm sure, he said tolerantly. He caught sight of the birdcage. Has the bird flown? We think the cat got it, said Mrs. Hale in a voice curiously even. He was walking up and down as if thinking something out. Is there a cat? he asked absently. Mrs. Hale shot a look up at the sheriff's wife. Well, not now, said Mrs. Peters. They're superstitious, you know, they leave. She sank into her chair. The county attorney did not heed her. No sign at all of anyone having come in from the outside, he said to Peters in a manner of continuing an interrupted conversation. Their own rope. Now, let's go upstairs again and go over it piece by piece. It would have to have been someone who knew just the... The stair door closed behind them and their voices were lost. The two women sat motionless, not looking at each other, but as if peering into something and at the same time holding back. When they spoke now, it was as if they were afraid of what they were saying, but as if they could not help saying it. She liked the bird, said Martha Hale, low and slowly. She was going to bury it in that pretty box. When I was a girl, said Mrs. Peters under her breath, my kitten, there was a boy, took a hatchet, and before my eyes, before I could get there, she covered her face in an instant. If they hadn't held me back, I would have... She caught herself, looked upstairs where footsteps were heard, and finished weakly. Hurt him. Then they sat without speaking or moving. I wonder how it would seem, Mrs. Hale said at last, as if feeling her way over strange ground, never to have had any children around. Her eyes made a slow sweep of the kitchen, as if seeing what that kitchen had meant through all the years. No, Wright wouldn't like the bird, she said after that, a thing that sang. She used to sing. He killed that, too. Her voice tightened. Mrs. Peters moved uneasily. Of course, we don't know who killed the bird. I knew John Wright, was Mrs. Hale's answer. It was an awful thing was done in, in this house that night, Mrs. Hale, said the sheriff's wife, killing a man while he, while he slept, slipping a thing round his neck that choked the life out of him. Wow, great stories, right? I hope you enjoyed them. Do you have a favorite among those? Please let me know. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to also remind you of the two-year anniversary of the podcast coming up on August 26th. Please consider a donation to help keep it coming. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. Until next time. <music>